Hello, and welcome to the Freightvine podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Bill Driegert, Head of Operations and Co-Founder of Uber Freight. I last had Bill on the Freightvine in October 2019, way before most of us could even spell pandemic. Prior to co-founding Uber Freight in 2016, he spent time at Amazon as Director of Planning and Innovation with oversight over new initiatives in final mile delivery and truckload. He was also a founding member of Coyote Logistics, which of course was later acquired by UPS, and he served as the company's chief innovation officer. In this conversation, Bill and I discussed the role the dynamic real-time rating has in a shipper's freight network, what having API connectivity really means, and more importantly, how execution is becoming more important than planning for freight transportation. So following my conversation with Bill, I'll be joined by Dr. Inami Yu to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Welcome to the Freightvine, Bill. Thanks, Chris. Can't believe it's been two years since I was last on. I know. Before I asked you to come back on again, I checked. And I thought, oh, this was probably about 10 months ago. And it was like, no, I think you're like my third or fourth guest. So I didn't know what I was doing then. I'm much smoother <laughs> now, you can tell. Yeah. So two years is a long time in the life of a, a digital freight broker or a digital company. So what has happened? How has Uber Freight evolved since the fall of 2019? A few things have changed in the world since uh, 2019. <laughs> I think coming into 2020 for us, we were coming into a year where we had been on a steady path of improvement of our core business. We were growing steadily, profitability was improving, the network was working, and then ran headlong, of course, into COVID. What really dramatically accelerated through COVID, though, is that we saw a dramatic acceleration of tech adoption. And so a lot of what we'd been building prior to 2020 hadn't found the perfect use case, I think, until COVID came along. Most specifically, hmm. a lot of the real-time tooling, like a pricing API, as an example. So when things went haywire, of course, you know, we saw a huge surge in demand with the initial buildup and everybody buying toilet paper, and then it dropped off and trucks were uh, driving to, to the, in front of the White House and parking complaining about <laughs> brokers. But then we got into this just insane, long, continuous rate surge from uh, mid-May right. to, to mid-August. And through all of that initial volatility, what we saw from the shipper side was just hunger for information. And so for us, we built these pricing APIs, which had started to get traction, but which just exploded. We saw you know, 150x growth just in the first few months uh, wow. of the pandemic. And it was because shippers just couldn't find capacity for as the market was tightening and they and prices were changing so rapidly, they just wanted new information. And of course, routing guides started to fall out at, at record levels. Uh, right. In fact, I just saw, like just within the last two weeks, acceptance rates have started to rise yes. to what were previous lows of the, the pre-pandemic lows. So we're just starting to get into normal territory again in terms of acceptance yeah. rates. Let me ask you, you mentioned uh, tech adoption. That's something that really increased during the pandemic. Do you think it was lagging from the shipper's perspective or the carrier's perspective or both? On the carrier side, that we'd already been pretty far along with that. So okay. in the journey of Uber Freight, we launched our carrier application first. And that was what, and back in May of 2017, the first product we had was an application that carriers could download and, and just book a load. And we found very rapid product market fit 
with that because it was a new experience as a carrier to just be able to download an app, hit a button, book a load. That that experience didn't exist before. And so we, we got a lot of adoption. And that adoption accelerated through 17, 18, and 19. And actually coming into the pandemic, we were we were in a pretty good spot in terms of just proving out the fundamentals of of our model, which was we thought if we could get our tech in the hands of carriers, they can book loads, it'll be instant access to the market. We can get faster access to trucks and find those trucks in the right locations. And that whole process becomes automated. So the carrier side was pretty far along that curve. And okay. we continue to grow the carrier side. But on the shipper side, it was always a little more challenging because you have such a fragmented market because shippers have significant investments in TMS systems. So you have to meet them where they are. And as a tech right. provider, it means you know, integrating across multiple different systems. And so for yeah. the API to get traction, we had to have those integrations across all the big TMS providers. And so we were actually first to market back in 2019 with a pricing API with SAP, but then rapidly followed that up with Oracle, Mercury Gate, all the big TMS providers. And so right. that foundation had to be in place but then with COVID hitting, after we'd kind of gone through that initial cycle of getting the integrations, the timing was was right to get that adoption, but then there was this immediate need. And so it really just opened the door for acceleration. Yeah, let me, because I was just talking with someone about this earlier today about digitization, you know, going digital, yeah. because it means different things to different people. Do you think it was true digiti digitization, digitalization, whichever one you want to use on the carrier side, or was it more a digital front to a sneaker net behind and people frantically doing things. Do you think it actually, how far did the digital connection go? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's I, that using the word digital is, is a bit of a pet peeve for me. I've kind of just given in at this point, but I, I always felt that word feels a little dated, you know, it's like yeah. a digital equipment company or it, it just feels very old school. And you it's have not a new word? word. What's your new word, Bill? Well, Uberization, Uberization. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure all the brokers, everyone's going to adopt that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's much more descriptive for us. No, I mean when we when we launched the the carrier app, it, it was a automated experience. So that a so the way I always break it down is before we came to market, if right. there were tech providers, but they were more like a classifieds listing. So I could download an application, I could see a load, but I couldn't just book it and have it. I had right. to call, negotiate. In most cases, I had to call. And so I, I, I'm calling the broker and I'm negotiating. Then they're sending the rate confirmation. And then I see in the app that it's my load versus uh, we were very focused on that one touch experience. So you download the app, you see a rate, it's 800 bucks. You hit the button, you book it and it's yours. And there's no calls or negotiation in the back end. It's, it's, that's, it's, it's done. For us, that's been very transformative to how we go to market on the carrier side. And as a result, we've been able to see significant improvements just in really efficiency and our ability to access more carriers and just leverage the market more Makes sense. And recover. Yeah, so there's no sneaker net, but I have an interesting story on that. Back okay. in one of my previous companies, we were looking for a company that could do automatic call transcription because we were trying mm -hmm. to get data out of the inbound calls. And we found a company that said, oh, we've got an API. It's all automated. Uh, you plug into our API, you upload the MP4 file you want to review, and we'll send back the transcription. They said, well, that's great. What do you do? Well, we take the MP4, we send it to the Philippines, and they write it all out. It's faux digital, but yeah. at least it's, a, it's partially digital. How's that? You, you don't have to send them a magnetic <laughs> tape. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So 
That's interesting because I like we're trying to figure out is because you raised a really interesting point. Some of the the transaction has always been digital. Once you got to email, yeah, that's digital. But the the acceptance and on the shipper side, how far upstream have you seen it become? I'm gonna I'm gonna use your word because you're my guest. Uberized going upstream, or do you see it still a lot of human interaction on the on that process? One of our favorite topics, both you and I, is is the pricing side, and that's mm-hmm. where I feel that the the pricing API that we implemented with SAP and now other providers has been really transformative because that to me is like an Uber experience. And when the reason I like Uberize more than digital is digital just says your yeah, computers are in the middle, but it doesn't really describe the process as where when I think of Uber, I think of a very simple process, right? I hit the button, I know the price, I see if there's capacity nearby, when I get out of the car, it's all done for me. So there's a simplicity to that that the technology enables, but the technology is just the medium for that experience. And I think that's a key difference. And when we say digital, I think people get caught up on a process. Like we used to say digital freight matching is still a term that I hear out there. And that's like right. one little one little piece of the process right, right. in terms of total experience. And so it doesn't, it's not really descriptive of all the pieces that have to come together to make a, uh, a better experience. But so similarly on the shipper side, because there's this history of investment in TMS systems and Right. And of course, you're very familiar with the, the, the how they work and the process and the routing guide and all the, the processes that they support. It's The problem has been somewhat abstracted in the sense that its reliability is built into the way that the rates cascade through the routing guide, that coverage cascades through the routing guide, that rolls over the spot board. And it's a complicated system. It's not a reliable system, but it's solved the problem, right? Yeah. And it solved the problem via technology. And so it's taken out a lot of the manual labor that traditionally you'd, you'd throw at that. But I think in practice, what you see is a lot of that breaks down on the front lines, right? Because particularly in markets like we had last year, the routing guides just fell apart. And so then you had to go to the spot board. And then in some cases, you're just not getting enough response on the spot board or the pricing is not coming back fast enough and you just have to react. And historically, there were not solutions that could fill that gap. Right. And that's where you do start to get the Uber-like experience through the API because you get a price and just like the carrier can hit a button and book it, now the shippers know that they get a price and they commit it and they go. They don't have, there's no back and forth. And it's one step more efficient than a traditional spot board because you don't have to respond. You can just pick and you go and you're getting an instant price. You're not waiting for the carrier to respond. And so yeah. you don't have to have a time window of collecting bids. You can just do it all instantaneously. Let's talk about that because that's that's a really interesting point. And it's because things change, right? Pre-deregulation in the 80s and up through actually the early 90s, things were very formal. And then the bidding process came. And uh, there was a ton of emphasis, as you and I both know, in creating the perfect carrier assignment. And people use scalpels and they spent a hundred revisions and all this kind of stuff. And I think the reason why they did, I know the reason why they did that is because operationally they were very clunky. They could only, a routing guide was a wood chipper, right? It's no matter what you did strategically, it ended up being this lane to this carrier at this price. And then backup is the first loser, then the second loser and, and, uh, and so forth, because operationally that's all they had. So you had all the, all the sophistication went into the strategy. And it seems what you're saying now is, operationally, we finally become a little more sophisticated. You don't need to put as much time to be strategically sophisticated up there. Move that down to real time. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and one of my fundamental beliefs that I really brought to bear when we built Uber Freight is that execution is much more important than planning. And this 
for me was a lesson that I learned early in my career when I spent a lot of time building planning systems. I've always believed that the execution is where you actually make the money or, or can make a difference. Because what I saw in my early career was we'd come up with a beautiful plan, much like a beautiful RFP, and then it immediately fell apart once you, you got to the floor or tried to execute it. And then the, the front lines did not have good tools to readjust the plan. So you'd yep. see significant yep. degradation to this optimal plan just in the replanning that happened when they could have made maybe better decisions if they had better tooling and were able to re-scenario quickly. But without that capability, uh, you just never were able to reach very good plan attainment and it, because it was always just some unrealistic utopian uh, dream of the world. And I think in freight, it's a highly dynamic, highly unreliable market. And so building the best execution platform will then result in less need, I would say, for great planning. And what I mean by that is that if you can execute perfectly, then the planning just becomes less of an important factor. And I think Uber is a perfect template for this in that if I can just get a, if I can get a ride anytime I want it by just pulling out my phone, I don't have to plan ahead. I don't have to tell the taxi to show up at, at 7 a.m. when I go to the airport. I just know I can pull it out and execute. And that, yeah, it creates a different expectation for how you manage transportation. Yeah, but we, we've had this argument now for at least two years, maybe longer. There's, I agree with that for some places. But for example, to use your same analogy for just the Uber or to be fair to Lyft, if I'm going to go to my commute every day, and I know I'm going to be there every day at 8 a.m. Yes. I probably don't need Uber. I might have a dedicated operation. I might have my own car. And so there's a continuum. And so for freight, there's definitely room for the yes. dynamic. We'll talk more about that. But there's also room for dedicated or private fleet. And there's probably room for some kind of contract. You don't, you don't need to go have a dynamic if you have five loads a day going on something, unless something dramatically changes. Do you, do you disagree? Do you think that everything can go dynamic or where do you think that that line will be drawn? Yeah, it's a great question because when we started Uber Freight, I, I was, I say, very gung-ho about that real-time freight line being pushed farther and farther and farther. I've, I'd say, cooled my jets a bit on that. <laughs> and I'm much more of a believer now that shippers need, all those options will persist. And I yeah. think that there will be contract rates, there will be dedicated, there will be real-time yeah. spot needs. And every shipper has a very different mix. And we've talked before about the layer uh, cake of freight and that you've got your dedicated, you've got your contract, you've got your spot and your volatile. And for different shippers, that mix can look very different. If you're a, if you're a toothpaste manufacturer versus a soda manufacturer, sure. you have a very different volatility profile. And I don't think that goes away, but I do think that for every one of those, you have an opportunity for real-time sourcing and for better processes because, you know, of course, within we can talk about the RFP, but the, the RFP is broken in many ways, but one is just all the labor costs that goes into that. Sure. And because it's this big batch event, you tend to bundle all this stuff that probably could be much more effectively managed closer to the point the decision is made, meaning that on the front lines, the way that it executes is you've got a load planner who realizes they've got a, a lane they need for the next two weeks. And so they send an email out to 50 carriers, 20 carriers, whoever's in their network and get rates for the next two weeks and they execute for two weeks. And then eight months later, that those two weeks of freight make it into the RFP for the next bid and then it never materializes because that was just the special case where they were rerouting you know, within their network for two weeks. Versus at that time of making that two-week decision, being able to get a real-time contract rate for just two weeks for a fixed amount of volume is much more of a 
a solution that fills the need versus trying to bundle that into an RFP after the fact. Yeah, let's turn to RFPs because that's a favorite topic of mine since I spent a lot of time there and that RFPs generally populate the routing guides. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows by now. The question is, are annual RFPs dead or do you think they're going to evolve? What do you think the RFP process will turn into? I don't think the need for contract rates ever goes away. I think the big manual batch processes will evolve significantly. Okay. I think where we go with this in the end is that if you can get real-time contract rates, you, you, you will do those when you're making a decision. And most of those decisions will be not on an annualized basis. They'll be throughout the year. They're still going to be, to your point, there's going to be the loads that just show up every, every day and where it's, it's facility to facility or it's just part of a fixed network where I just need capacity. Maybe I use dedicated opportunities. Maybe that goes on a private fleet or maybe I go to market and get contract rates in those. Maybe some of those lanes are less certain than others, and so I, I want to get contracts on those. And so there's some portion of the freight which still goes into these annual events, but I think all of the decisions that are not a continual annual freight cycle start to go into more real-time channels. So if it's a yeah. three-month commitment, it's a six-month commitment, it's a two-week commitment, it's a one-load commitment, it makes sense that those should just be generated when I'm making that decision. And you want also you want to have a competitive bidding environment, but I think the insight is that you have APIs that allow for that. And so today we do have, so we have three month real-time contract rates on both sides of the market for carriers and shippers that can be generated. And I can, that channel I expect to continue to evolve uh, and expand. So when you say a, a three month real-time rate, that's a, a, a contract rate that's for the, the life of it is three months, not that it's dynamic within those three months. Yes. Does it change within those three months? It does not. It's okay. A, yeah. So got it. Yeah, got so, it. So we call it rate lock. Okay. I think in traditional parlance in the industry, it'd be like a rate on file to be able to. Generate yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that uh, shippers can actually reduce the pain of this process? Because it is a big pain. I, I talked to some shippers and they, I talked to many who spend three to four months getting it ready, giving it care to a week. And then they spend two to three months analyzing. Do you think that process is getting shorter or can get be made shorter so you can actually do it more frequently, like quarterly? I think if you have API capabilities we're able to plug in, if you're able to get access to tooling that lets you price that real time, then it takes a lot of the labor out of the process. I mean, that's what we see on the spot side with our real time pricing is that it, it takes away the labor of the spot board management. For contract or spot, there's a lot of overhead just in managing the bidding sure. process to get competitive bidding. And so if you're able to do that all programmatically, if you're able to hit today, what we see on the spot side is a lot of our shippers say it's it's a much lower overhead way of just going to market and finding rates. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely changed since the time we've both been in this industry in that um, spot rates, we didn't, and I'm trying to call them dynamic too. I'm trying to change terms as well as, as you are, Bill is dynamic rates used to be when everything else failed, right? Brokers were a four-letter word for procurement events up until probably 2010, maybe, and then they started becoming acceptable. But I think shippers have finally realized there's a role, and it's not just because nothing else worked. There's certain parts of their network that is not repeated, that is sparse, that is better rolled up by an aggregator, which a broker tends to do, and they're finding a niche for that. And so the percentage that I've seen of lanes going through is increasing dramatically. Mm-hmm. So that's taking a lot, it's reducing the size of the 
network that goes through the RFP, which makes it less of a big batch process. Are you seeing the same kind of thing? We are absolutely seeing adoption rates grow on the API, and we're seeing that displace traditional spot. And without perfect visibility into our shippers' networks, uh, I think our expectation is that is also displacing some of what would traditionally go through an RFP. We certainly have use cases where it's it's a comparison against an RFP or something's being rebid right. to using that API as a benchmark. Sure. Or if they're getting, as an example, carriers coming back to renegotiate rates. If you have an API access and you see it's lower than the renegotiated rate, then well, then I'll just go with that. And I, I may plug the gap with an API before I go back to market. And particularly in an inflationary rate environment, you don't want to go out to market if you think rates are going to continue to rise. Right. We are predicting a continually inflationary environment into 2022. And so with that in mind, as a shipper, right, if you can just go to the market and adjust, and then if you expect at some point they are going to correct, and you know, freight, of course, does have cycles. At some point, things have to ease. It can't go on forever. And if that's the case, you just don't know when, then it makes a lot more sense to put a higher portion on that real time until you can go to market when you think things right. might be easing and stabilizing. Let me ask you a question about API, because I'm... I, I'm not as actively into the, the technology as I probably should be. So when you say API, not all APIs are the same. One is a protocol to communicate, but then there's also automated pricing. Mm -hmm. For when you say API, do you mean those together or do you can you separate those into separate functions where the, the Uberization occurs across multiple processes, not just one? Yeah. So when I say API, I'm referring to the tech, but it's a pricing API. So API only meaning that there's an interface that we're providing or a surface for which the TMS tools can call our internal systems and return a rate. And there's also a way then that they can book that load and request, effectively put the load on our system for which we get capacity. But simply, and, and that's the way you refer to API, but someone else could have an API and it's just, a, it's purely a communication protocol. Right? Yes. It could be a human on the end, you know, sending things off to the Philippines. It could, Yes. To be a proper API, it still needs to programmatically interface with the TMS. So that, yes, they could have an interface with, and, and we have heard rumors of other brokers implementing a process to that effect, right? Where Who shall not be named. Who shall not be named. Yes, but where you've got an API, which is effectively spitting loads out into some form that a, a user is then parsing out and filling in a rate, and then it's spitting the rate back. I don't think that's a sustainable process, but it does create this challenge in the industry where if the shipper expectation is an API, that creates a certain technical floor for which you, you can participate in those spot opportunities. Right. Yeah. Cause I've always, I've always wondered that because I mean, technically EDI could be set up the same way. It's just, you know, it's batch. It's a little more fixed, not as flexible, Yeah. but you could, it's just a, you know, whether it's all machines. So I'm, I'm curious, going back to some of the stuff we talked earlier on, what is your sense of the number of transaction percentages, a rough guess, that are completely bloodless, meaning that it drops from a shipper's order management system into their TMS, goes through their TMS straight out to Uber Freight or to whatever, it, the carer responds back affirmatively, and then it, it's accepted, and then the load physically starts moving. Do you have any sense of the percent of, of loads of, of transactions that Uber Freight handles that would go... 100% bloodless? Yeah, I can't provide an exact number, but it's a significant okay. percent. Yeah. In the market as a whole, though, I would expect it's still a pretty small percent just because most providers don't have that full capability. 
yeah. to date. And some some of the larger, you know, more traditional ones have it in places, but not because you know that it's a hard transformation to change everything to this. Well, to your point, there's still the the EDI has been allowing for this for quite some time. So even brokers 10 years ago would have a significant percent of freight that would come through in an electronic way with rates that yeah. are pre-approved. And so back to the RFP, if you have a rate on file and it's not a spot rate, then a significant percent of that is coming through in a touchless way. Where it typically breaks down is a facility doesn't exist or the rate mismatches or there's some error in the transaction. You avoid that with a pure spot-driven API because it's it's real time. This is the rate you're sending. It's all just it's a direct connection. It's not asynchronous, right? In time, right, right. Um, is where yeah. you know, like an RFP managing an RFP through a traditional EDI tendering mechanism, it's asynchronous. Plus, you don't always have perfect information on facilities, and yeah, it's just a more old school way of, of managing that transaction. But that said, even you know, even in my days at Coyote and, and you know, early, like we we would still automate a significant percent just through an EDI process. Right. So if it if it goes to plan, it can be totally touchless. Yeah. So EDI works well as long as nothing nothing changes. This is where the, the I think the big difference is with the newer models is it's the carrier side, particularly the long tail carrier side, where it's typically been less automated. And the shipper side, it may be abstracted, it may be imperfect, it may have this, you know, like performance issues and all these buffers in the process and timing buffers, meaning you're rolling through the routing guide one by one, or you're waiting for a bid response, but there's still mechanisms to automate that, but you may not just be getting a good rate or getting poor reliability when the carrier shows up. And so a lot of it is reflected in just performance metrics, less so in the pure automation. And there's overhead in managing those processes that I don't think is as tangible or is a bit abstracted. But on the carrier side, it's very direct because historically you're calling and you're talking to somebody and it's, but if I go sit with our account management team, there's not a lot of inbound calls coming to that team dealing with just core load management. It's typically exceptions and other things that are bubbling up. Well, let me talk about something else that's recently happened at Uber Freight. I was there when you opened your new Chicago office earlier in October of this year, and it's beautiful space. It's massive space. So how will you guys utilize this and how will this change how uber freight operates yeah i'm super excited about the post office and yeah you have the the opportunity to see the the space it's oh it's stunning it's a it's a very iconic building it's it was actually um the largest post office when they opened up the expansion and in 1932 it was 2.5 million total square feet so uh, what's really unique about the building is it's, it's nine floors uh, each floor is about 220,000 square feet. So that's about 10x the size of a traditional office floor plate in a traditional high-rise office building. So we'll, we say it's like a skyscraper set on its side. And so for one floor of the old post office, we've got the equivalent of 10 floors and it's 400 yards from one end to the other. And it's just, it allows this so much more, I'd say character and dynamic utilization of the space or just, we have a lot of little unique niches and areas that you can go and hang out. It just makes it more inviting. It just makes, adds a lot of character. I would expect there's going to be a lot of walking meetings, just walking back and forth around the space. It's definitely pulling people in. We officially opened the office to our uh, our team on Monday and we saw 10x the attendance that we had seen. Oh, wow. Yeah, prior at the other office. We haven't officially started a return to office. That's uh, going to be in 2022. But regardless, I think I'm, I'm expecting a lot of people will just 
come into the office and check it out. The other thing I find really interesting about the post office. So at its peak, it was at the peak volume they ever did in that building uh, was 19 million pieces uh, of mail a day, which, you know, I worked at Amazon briefly. I don't think Amazon FCs are, are matching that, that volume. <laughs> the other interesting thing is the reason it was so big is back then Chicago was the epicenter of catalog delivery. And so you had Montgomery Ward and Sears, of course, with right. massive operations. And so all of that was funneling through this uh, Chicago old post office. And so, you know, the, the peak dominance of Sears and Montgomery Ward as like the catalogers and retail catalogers, the, the post office was in full force. So why why Chicago for you guys? Why for Uber Freight? You, you've got that Silicon Valley, let's all wear a black T-shirt kind of vibe <laughs> going. What's, what's up with Chicago? Yeah, so personally, I lived in Chicago for 10 years. Both my kids were born in Chicago. I've, I, uh, of course, you know, worked at uh, Coyote Logistics Bar and spent a lot of time there. Ever since then, I always viewed Chicago as the epicenter of logistics and particularly freight brokerage in the U.S. It's a city that has a long history of connection to logistics. It was this, you know, it was a rail interchange, you know, the east and the west rails met there. Uh, and of course, right. the Great Lakes, it's all, it was a big port for the Great Lakes. You had a lot of lumber that used to float down from up north and get processed in Chicago. And it's always just been kind of the center of commerce for the Midwest and all of the croplands would filter through, or all the crops, you know, would filter through Chicago. So it's always been this logistics hub. As a result, there's a lot of talent in, in that market and particularly logistics talent. And so when we started, I knew we had to be in Chicago. There's other cities that I think have similar histories or capabilities. You know, we have operations in Dallas as well. I'm from Dallas originally, so another reason I love Dallas. But Chicago particularly has always just had this reputation, and rightfully so, of being a logistics hub. And so when we started, we were in SF. Of course, Uber is in San Francisco. San Francisco being the hub of technology. And Uber Freight has this very interesting position of straddling these worlds of old school logistics and San Francisco high technology. And so having operations both in SF and Chicago made a lot of sense. But for our core operations, Chicago was always going to be the heart. And Chicago has a great tech history as well. In fact, we just launched our technology innovation center in, in Chicago and mm. hired uh, Val Merchevsky as our head of logistics tech. And so we're doubling down on our tech investment in Chicago as well. And for, you know, for SF, SF is a very competitive engineering market. Chicago's got great talent as well. For us, it made sense to diversify our, our base of talent there. So, so what type of, what type of talent, what type of people you have there? You, how many people is the plane to have filling out this whole floor? Yeah. The post office will fill out with more than 2000 employees uh, as we scale. Wow. Yeah. So, and that's all, it includes all Uber operations or Uber Eats operations and Uber operations there as well. Freight being the biggest tenant among Uber. So I have to ask, so if if Uber the Uberization of, of freight transportation is to remove the human from the process, why are there several hundred people coming in for this? What will they be technology based? Will they be will they be secretly behind the the scenes working phones? Is there some of that still there? Or what what will these people be doing? What is the type of talent? Yeah, it's a great question. So we do have a lot of analysts and tech and engineering headcount. So we're definitely investing heavily in the tech. That's always been the foundation. But yes, we also do have operations heads. So when we started this, the thesis was always if we built the tech, got it in the carrier's hands and the shipper's hands, that would drive more efficiency in the whole process, take labor out of the process. We thought that we could also then buy better on the carrier side while also making carriers better utilized because we would right. find better matches. And we also thought that it would improve service because 
we would be able to find carriers more easily, recover, all that would be automated. All of that has played out, but what we look at, I look at these graphs uh, obsessively, right? And they, they all improve year over year over year. And including one of those graphs is our, our headcount or loads per headcount, right? Or uh, loads per day per head or ops cost per load. So certainly one of the things that we're focused on as a tech company is how we can use the tech to do this more efficiently. But freight is an old guard industry and it's not something, it's not an industry that changes overnight. On the carrier side, we've been able to move much faster in the sense that our automation rate, you know, we book well over on any given day, 95% plus of the freight is just booked automatically. There is some remainder where you still have to pick up the phone or reach out or look for coverage. On the other side of the market, the API got big acceleration 2019 to 2020, but there are still, I'd say, more traditional processes in how we go to market. And shippers also have had more leverage in the market. So you have to, to meet them where they are more than you do on the carrier side. Yeah. And the, the, the thing there, Bill, though, is the carriers that you're automated, that 95%, I, I was actually really surprised by that. That's really high. Um, these are carriers that usually only did things by phone and yes. load board, right? I think the carriers uh, in general have just been hungry, much hungrier for better solutions because it's been underserved, and particularly the small carriers. And so we've heavily invested in building out tech and capabilities for those owner operators and truck or carriers with 10 trucks and fewer. And that's the segment that we've had the most success with. We have, we work with all size carriers, but those carriers particularly right. just, yeah, they can now all of a sudden, you know, one day you can download uh, an application, see an upfront price and book a load. That's pretty transformative because one, I'm seeing a price, like I can go to another broker and say, Hey, I've got, you know, $500 with Uber Freight, right? So it gives them more leverage in the market, but two, they're getting paid faster. They're getting needed access. They have more optionality. So uh, that's, that was where most of the automation has come on that side because the adoption has just been so yeah. strong. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and in 2021, you're probably more aware of this and have better numbers than I do. The number of, of, Carriers opening up, getting new authority, especially small carriers, was up by I want to say thirty thousand. Yeah. So there's more. These lease drivers are are getting their own authority and moving over. Right? Have you noticed that? No, this is huge for us because we've seen FMCSA registrations increase two to three x in terms of the rate of new yeah. registrants. And for us, that's our target audience. That's our sweet spot. So we call every single yeah. one of those carriers when they they come on board. And by and large, most of those new carriers are coming from existing carriers or asset owning carriers. Most right. of these are experienced drivers that are that realize that they can just make more money if they go independent. Exactly. And so the interesting thing there, though, is that means total capacity is not being added to the market. It's just shifting. And my question is, do you think it will shift back? Or do you think that you've, you've created this, you're enabling a longer tail and we're going to have a more of a decentralization of the carrier market, more fragmentation than there is now. What do you think? I fundamentally believe that we have shifted the market and made it more sustainable for small carriers to participate in the market because they do have, and it's not just us, but certainly I will you know, take credit for leading the market in this direction because we were the first to market with a really owner operator focused, small carrier focused solution with this upfront pricing. And I do think that it allows one, it allows carriers to make much better decisions. It gives them instant visibility on what's going on in the market. And so I touched on earlier, like if a carrier needs to park, if they can afford to park the truck and just park the truck, then like they should be able to make that decision quickly. 
as we're in a traditional market, you kind of always, you know, the inf there's this information asymmetry. And I think we've been able to chip away at that quite a bit by providing upfront pricing and optionality. Plus we pay them fast. We don't play games with, on the payment side. We, you know, we pay very quickly so that because cash flow is important. And right. we've invested very heavily in benefits like our wallet, which we just launched, where we're trying to provide additional financial benefits to carriers to improve their quality of life and lower their operating costs and, and drive utilization. I think all that together does make a more sustainable market. And so as a, if I'm thinking about being a small carrier or going out on my own in 2021, that's much easier than it was in 2015 or 2016. Yep. You know, that makes, that makes sense. Let me, let me ask you one last question, Bill. And that's kind of from the shipper side. What do you think the future is of the TMS, of the transportation management system? Because all players, brokers, uh, data managers, everyone is kind of, encroaching in finding a better way or a different way for shippers and carriers to communicate both strategically and operationally, which is the bread and butter of a TMS. Yep. So what do you think the future is? Is it evolving? Is it going away? What do you think? I don't think it ever goes away because the TMS has this critical role for shippers and that it's the, it's the system that interfaces with the carriers. And so you'll always have a system or a layer of technology there. I think it becomes a lot smarter in the sense that you will have a lot more of this real-time information because us and others will be providing that and we'll be wanting to plug it in to those TMS providers. I think it becomes much more of a game of like who has the best network and that can provide the best information and has the highest accuracy on things like coverage and rates and all the data that we use to run our network. I think that becomes much more present within the TMS systems. So I think that what will likely go away are these very step-by-step -step execution methodologies versus it being right. much more real-time. Because there's no reason, even if I have a contract rate that I can't just reach all the, like know where the carriers are, reach them all instantaneously and execute instantaneously versus waiting for traditional waterfall. And so I, I think you'll see a lot of structural improvements in how TMSs execute. It will become a lot more information-rich, a lot more real-time. And as a result, it'll be more resilient and shippers will be able to make better decisions. And I think that's the end state. I don't see it going away, but you know, we can debate the traditional routing guide. I think that piece is, I, I put a question mark on, but I think long-term, you're just going to see a lot more instant execution, instant pricing, right. And instant recovery as well. Right. So one of the things that we've been very thoughtful about this last year is that how much information can we just provide proactively to shippers and I fundamentally believe the more you push transparency, like it just creates a better dynamic, higher trust and allows shippers and carriers to make better decisions. And ultimately my vision is you kind of take yourself out of the middle of that as, as an intermediary and that the, what we can do through technology is really inform both sides of the transaction. And I think a TMS, an in-state TMS is one where a shipper is just exceptionally informed about the state of their freight, the location, right. the market rates, right? How likely it is to recover, how likely it is to bounce, right? You can start to imagine all the information that as a shipper, I would love to have. Mm -hmm. But I also think the in-state is like shippers are not actively managing their freight because it's just managing itself. And so a TMS should also have a lot of uh, self-healing. Like one thing we talk yeah. about in our network yeah. is that we automatically recover. It's very self-healing. You take that up a level at a shipper and they should have those same sort of capabilities internalized as well. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's funny. As you're talking, I'm thinking more. There's a reason why 
the waterfall and the routing guide and the RFP were there, it's because operationally that's all they could handle. Yeah. And now it's operations, like you said at the very beginning, as execution becomes smarter, the planning doesn't need to make those heroic assumptions yes. that we that they have been making. And the tools can be more dynamic yep. and more changeable for that healing and for adjusting to this changing market. That makes it that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. All right. That's the last word then. Thank you, Bill. Excellent. I appreciate you coming on today. Always a pleasure. Yeah. I always learn something new when we when we uh, talk. I have a new phrase. I don't think any other broker wants to use that the, they're Uberizing their, uh, their process. <laughs> I, I, don't so I, that, I don't know why. I don't know why. That's an uphill battle. That's an uphill battle. Keep working on it. Okay. Everyone, please stay tuned to hear the market update with Dr. Enam Yu. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for November 4th, 2021. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are flat. Spot rates are down 2%. Replacement rate is positive 13%. This means the new contract rates are about 13% above the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are up 1%. Spot rates down half a percent and replacement rate is positive 14%. On the intermodal side, active rates are flat. Spot rates are down half a percent and replacement rate is positive 6%. Finally, on the flatbed side, active rates are flat. Spot rates up half a percent and replacement rate is positive 7%. So Enam, it looks like spot rates are kind of settling down a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's loosening up the last at least couple of weeks, two to three weeks. So that's a good sign. It may have another spike, just a seasonal spike that we generally see latter, you know, latter part of November, early December. But it does seem overall flat, uh, the spot rates loosening up a little bit. Right. And the replacement rates, which is, you know, the level that the replacement new rates coming in, seems to be hovering as through October around low double digits. Do you think that's going to continue? Do you see that going down? I think it's been continuing for some time now. I would think that if if these spot rates continue to go down, we would start seeing the, the replacement rate starting to drop. But again, I think barring any major environmental shocks again, but I think the way it is, it seems like it's, it's uh, loosening up a little bit. Okay. So what about the active rates? They're flattening a little bit. And so it seems even though the all the rates have come in for the replacement rates with the new bids coming in, it seems like the impact it's had on active rates seems kind of have happened at this point. Yes. Yes. I, I, it does definitely see that. I mean, re- replace uh, the active rates have been rising at such a sharp rate that, you know, it's getting closer. Even the, the, the spot rates are slightly dropping and it's, it's almost the rates are getting very close. The two rates are getting very, very close to each other. Hmm. So I, I would see that, you know, potentially it might cross very quickly if, if the spot rates start dropping. Yeah, I hate to cry wolf too many times. We, we think we've thought that this was going to happen where the market would correct Q2 last year and then Texas freeze happened in February. And then over the summer, the summer never came. 
we went straight into it. So we'll see, uh, barring any new disruptions or distractions, it looks like the market might be showing signs of settling, but it won't it won't take effect until what what do you think q1 q2 q1 q2 yeah because i think the whatever is the ports are still going at its snail pace i think just because the number of hours were increased doesn't mean that people can no. be expanded like that right i mean the, the the that's where the skills everything come into play right you can't just double the capacity just like that you know people know those people know what they're doing yeah, and the other thing is, I think Port of LA just showed that they they had the record of the no, most number of containers processed in a month or a week, and so it's very high. But when they say processed, that means unloaded. It doesn't mean through the system. So you still have this so many different pieces of the port and the bottleneck. The thing that the shippers care about is from when the ship arrives to the container gets to my location, and it's just like the old way the mail USPS used to measure it. They're measuring it internal. Yep. They're not measuring it end to end. And that's that's the thing that shippers want. They want to know total time to the container till I get it at my DC. And uh, that's not what the ports are measuring. They're measuring unloading. So, yeah. All right. Any other insights? Any other thoughts about uh, what the market's doing? No, I think the the generally at a macro level, I think what we are trying, what we are seeing now is, you know, the labor, labor situations getting, what do you say? The unions are trying to make sure that, you know, they are trying to get everything possible in this situation of labor crisis yeah. so i right. think that's that's continuing to happen you're seeing in different places where the unions are heavy uh, and then even if there's non-union places i think you are seeing the record increase of people changing jobs right so i think yeah. it's it is a mark market where things are going to change and on the other side the inflation is you know, increasing like crazy. Yeah, not, so I think it's a macro effect overall. Yeah, not unrelated things, but yeah, you're right. When whoever's on the top, they will use that leverage. When the market is tight versus when it's loose, yeah, it works both ways. All right, that concludes this week's Truckload Market Update. Thanks, Enam. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Enam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Find or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at The Freight Find, Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.